0: But one soldier gets 17.
1: What are you gonna do?
0: I'm going to kill them all, sir. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy!
1: Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest with me Gareth Green and my co-host Andrew Raphael. My daddy used to say, "Don't blow holes in me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was it? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. For this week's episode, we're watching 1998's Kurt Russell action vehicle Soldier, in which Russell plays the titular hero, remembered fondly for uttering immortal lines such as, "Yes sir," and "No sir," and. Who could forget this iconic line? What <laughs> is is this Paul W.S. Anderson film an overlooked gem buried in trash, or does it deserve to rot in the junkyard? Find out after the trailer.
0: In the future, technology will allow us to explore new worlds and change the way we live like never before. But there is one thing that will never change. Who we are. He was programmed from birth to be part of the most invincible army in history. But like all scientific advancements... They're practically manufactured using DNA profiles. He was destined to become obsolete. More endurance? Better hand-eye? It's a whole different standard. What do we do with him? Waste disposal. His training had prepared him for anything.
1: Except this. Kurt Russell is Todd. From the Fox and the Hound. (laughs) He is, yeah. Is that an in reference? (laughs) And Kurt Russell is Todd, a veteran soldier of Trump's Space Force who finds himself discarded on a trash planet when replaced by a superior model. Here, he befriends the locals and finds he has to make a stand to protect his new home, a Californian soundstage. Okay. So that's my intro to Soldier. I do know, Andy, that this is your first time watching Paul W.S. Anderson's Magnum Opus. What did you feel uh, watching it for the first time around? Because this is one of the few times in which we have not spoken, really, about this film whatsoever before the uh, recording of this episode. So I have no idea what you're thinking.
0: Well, I don't know as far as Magnum Opus. Um, (laughs) I, I would say maybe Event Horizon takes that moniker. Which is ironic considering that Event Horizon was the film that he made to pass the time for
1: Kurt Russell building himself up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to go through some context as to the making of this film and how it came to be. And yeah, it's almost like Event Horizon was a stopgap movie. It was just to fill some time and it is, hands down, the better film. Yeah, but
0: I do think they are bedfellows of some sort's. There's very little time separating them. Yeah. One comes out the year before the other. They have very similar casts, very similar look, and just, yeah, very similar tone to an extent. You can tell they're made by the same person. But apart from that, everything else is... Like, the actual content is quite different, but you can tell that they are sort of twins as such.
1: Yeah, I would say that I can imagine Soldier existing more in the Event Horizon universe than I can ever imagine it existing in the Blade Runner universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this isn't my first time watching Soldier, and it was a film that I put forth for us to review on Popcorn Digest. And the reason that I put it forward was because Soldier is widely regarded as being Paul W.S. Anderson's worst film. And I actually disagree. I actually think it kind of goes hand in hand with Event Horizon, with Event Mm. Horizon being the obvious better film. But I feel like it actually is somewhat overlooked. It's nowhere near as bad as its reputation has us believe. I wouldn't say it's great or anything like that, but it's at least a competent trash action film that I have no qualms in saying that I actually enjoyed... It's not something that I will watch over and over again. I've already watched it twice for this podcast, and that is one too many times. Yeah. It's certainly not an offensively bad movie, as many of us have been led to believe. No,
0: absolutely not. It's actually quite a well-made movie, I would say. For films of, of this type, probably one of the best... Uh, looking ones I've seen. Yeah,
1: I will say that the uh, the DOP on this film was one David Tattersall, mm-hmm. who you may remember from Star Wars Episode 2 and 3. And one. D- did he actually do one as well? He did all three. Yeah, because he had a
0: background with Lucasfilm. anyway. He shot a lot of the um, young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Ah, right. Which was always a dry run for the techniques that they would use in the prequels, because Rick McCallum was the producer on those, and they a lot of the editing facilities and all, all the post-production was all tried and tested on those young Indiana Jones Chronicles. So he was obviously brought over from that.
1: The reason that I was actually shocked to hear that he was also the DOP on episode one is I've always found out of the prequels that it's the one that looks remarkably different from the other two. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've convinced myself that it must have had a different DOP simply because of the look of the film, but it's more so just the special effects hole that George Lucas fell into. Well,
0: it was shot on film, wasn't it? The first one. Yeah,
1: it was shot on film, and the others are shot on HD 1080p digital. Prototype cameras. (laughs) Really future-proof those movies you did. Oh, absolutely.
0: (laughs) I think also as well, like, it surprised me... Anyway, because the colours in Soldier are so vivid yeah, and the composition and the lighting is superb, actually. I, I would say it's easily one of the best looking films I've looked at that's from the late 90s of this type. And it really surprised me that I find that the lighting and the colour palette for those yeah. Star Wars prequels, and even the first one shot on film, to be very drab and flat. Mm-hmm. And I attribute that down to George probably being on his shoulder all the time. Yeah, because you look at the rest of his filmography the other noticeable entry around this time would be die another day which is actually a very well shot film for what it is they have a similar color palette actually to this vivid colours.
1: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I did describe this film to you before you'd seen it as having cartoon characters, but I actually think that it has this vivid, pulpy comic book aesthetic as well that really helps the film in many ways. In terms of the aesthetic, I think it was somewhat ahead of its time in that regard because films look completely different, especially action films of this genre. I mean, I'm talking about like the Bruckheimer movies as well, and even films that came a little bit later, like Lost in Space and stuff that played on the sci-fi I don't think they were as inventive as The Lock of Soldier as well.
0: No, they're a bit drab looking, those those films.
1: But I do want to place this film in some context. I want to just set Mm. the scene and go through a few of the things that made this movie, essentially. So where this story starts, essentially, is with David Webb Peoples, who wrote the script. I think it was not Long after he had worked on Blade Runner, and it was intended to be like a a spin-off of that universe.
0: I read that it was based on one of the rejected opening sequences from Blade Runner where the replicants are are on the junk planet. I think they're yeah. hunting off world colonists or something like that. And it's based on one of those sequences. And yeah, I think, yeah, he started it in like 1983 or whilst Blade Runner was actually filming.
1: I remember there is a striking image in the Blade Runner documentary uh, that shows you a storyboard image of Roy Batty rising from a junk pile. Mm, yeah, I think this is the image that this film is based on. That's where this film it takes that image and it goes from there. Yeah, yeah. But in many ways, I, I feel like it's that connection to Blade Runner that has likely done this film a disservice because it doesn't compare to a masterpiece. It's not that type of film. I don't think paul anderson ever intended to make that type of film he's more just happy having some goofy easter eggs hidden throughout the film but he's more interested in just making an enjoyable action schlocky film with some interesting ideas
0: it would be interesting to read the original version of the script because i know it went through a long gestation period and and had some uncredited rewrites along the way yeah so i don't think it probably resembles the original script that much i
1: imagine and because the film's script was written around the time of blade runner's release it did gestate for a while it was about 10 years before the film actually gained any traction in terms of it getting made and so they did have to update a lot of the elements so now when you look at the film in terms of the dates that are used they don't really match up to the blade runner universe that we're provided with in terms of no, this no. super soldier program beginning in 1998 and that type of thing I will say that the film was originally actually meant to be filmed much sooner. It had to be put on the back burner as Kurt Russell needed 18 months to gain the necessary muscle for the role of Todd. So that was an 18-month wait for Kurt Russell. And in that time, Paul Anderson actually made Event Horizon. Yeah. And
0: Kurt Russell didn't do any other films in that time. He was concentrating solely on building himself up. But from the looks of it, it seems like Kurt Russell wasn't particularly invested in the film <laughs> as such uh, he was more invested in the money he would be getting from the film
1: yes yes he was invested in the paycheck uh, he does and i've and read an interview with him recently there's there's some discrepancy in regards to the amount that he was paid i've read that it was 20 million dollars which mm. is a third of the film's budget that's a lot of money <laughs> it's an incredible amount of money and it's to be honest it's the paycheck that kurt russell's career demands Yeah, yeah. He deserves that paycheck for, to be honest, just breathing at this point. (laughs) He's done so much for us. But um, according to Kurt Russell himself, he said it was around 15 million that he was actually paid. And that's for a character that has 104 words throughout the entire runtime. I was trying to count them. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't want to divvy that up to how much that was per word, but I imagine it's a record.
0: And he's on screen for 85% of the time as well. Yeah. But just thinking about it, is, is this the last action film that Kurt Russell led? Was this his kind of retirement fund as such film action films?
1: Yeah, he did take a three-year hiatus following this film because he mm. simply made the decision then that he had got the paycheck that he had been working for, and now he just wanted to make the films that he wanted to make whilst enjoying time off with his family which is completely understandable. I know that he came back for films like Poseidon.
0: Yeah, I know he disappeared for quite a while. He was in things like Sky High in the mid-2000s.
1: Yes, I went to the cinema to see Sky High simply because Kurt Russell was in it. And I will say, I've only seen it that one time, but it's fantastic. (laughs) It's got Bruce Campbell in as well.
0: But I'm pretty sure this is the last action film that he
1: led because I think after that he transitioned into more mature roles. And ensemble pieces as well, because even Poseidon's an ensemble piece.
0: Yeah, because I was thinking, do you know after the first montage where you see him growing up? Yes. And it says year 38, and I was like, hmm, is he 38 or is is he much older than that? (laughs) I was like, 38,
1: uh, 47. Yeah. Something like, I don't think he's 38 in this film. No, most certainly not. I'm 33, and look at this baby (laughs) face. I think Kurt Russell is worth every single penny, but unfortunately it did have a negative effect on the movie as... Waiting for him, for that 18 months, for him to gain the necessary muscle. As one of the things that did actually happen to this film was, well, it was billed as a Western in space Mm. by David Webb Peoples and Paul W. Sanderson, and that's what he was attracted to. He said that, speaking to David Webb Peoples about the film, they made the decision that they wanted to shoot on existing locations to give the film a more authentic Western feel. But unfortunately, during the 18 months that it took Kurt Russell to gain the muscle, there were a series of storms. I think it was an El Nino that year. Mm-hmm. And it completely ruined the locations for shooting. There's only one real on-location set, and that is the whale-like ship boneyard thing,
0: mm. uh,
1: where the graves are, which is a fantastic-looking set as well in an existing location. And yeah, yeah, Paul W. Sanderson's always pointed towards that and said, that is what he wanted this film to look like. He didn't want it to look like it was shot on a soundstage. But I would actually say that the soundstage stuff, I actually really like that set.
0: Yeah, I I wrote a note about the uh, about the production design. It felt like an amalgamation between several movies. It it gave me Alien Three vibes. Yeah, meets Mad Max. Yeah, which we were talking about the other week. Meets Blade Runner. And those three things join together in some way. Yeah. The use of the neon signs and things like that. Yeah. And the lighting and the like the the fairy lights and stuff like that.
1: I guess that's another thing that does tie it to the Blade Runner universe and that this is where all the trash from from Our World goes to. This is where it's going to die. Yeah. It's kind of like that Las Vegas signage boneyard that they have.
0: It's a bit like Wally as well, actually. It is, yeah. It reminded me of that. Obviously, Wally's much later, but... uh... Wally stole from Soldier!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kurt Russell is Wally. Yes, sir. (laughs) Okay, and uh, just some further pieces of information as well about the film. I just have a couple more that I do need to go through. And this is another unfortunate accident for Kurt Russell. Another unfortunate piece of trivia surrounding Kurt Russell is that he actually broke his ankle on the first week of shooting. You can actually see it in the final film. There's a fight sequence at the end of the film between Kurt Russell's Todd and the main bad guy, whose name's Kane. During that, a piece of signage falls from the set and lands on his foot. And if you pause it at the right time, you can just see the moment it breaks his ankle. Uh. And it made it into the final film. <laughs> and then three or four days after that, he then broke his foot on the other side. They had to shut down production and they rescheduled and retooled the remainder of production, which is pretty much 90% of the film, around Kurt Russell's rehabilitation. And the way that they did that was they actually shot all of the stuff with him laying down first and then they moved to the mm-hmm. shots with him sat up and then the shots of him standing and finally, at the very end of production, they finished with the shot of him running through the hangar. Yeah. But in that movie magic way, you don't really ever see that through this film. No. No. <laughs> And so that's just setting some of the uh, the context for this film. I will say that Paul Anderson is coming on this film. His previous films haven't been shopping Mortal Kombat and Event Horizon. And that's when we arrive at Soldier. Although he was um, hard done to by both critics and the box office, this is probably the strongest run in his career. Mm. Uh, just this <laughs> Event Horizon-Soldier duo. You, you, you get the feeling that he is building towards something in terms of him being a filmmaker to watch. How things changed from that point onwards.
0: I always thought about is is it when he had to add the WS to his name would <laughs> that when it all went downhill? Didn't he have to add it for the next film for Resident Evil? Yeah. I feel like all his
1: films as Paul Anderson are better than Paul W S Anderson <laughs> films. Well, I did remember reading an interview with Paul W S Anderson where he said that he met with Paul Anderson and they both talked about the fact that people are always getting their films confused together. People are always asking Paul Lewis Anderson questions about Magnolia. That was when the decision was made to, <laughs> to, to change his name. Um, I imagine it was more of a push from the Paul Thomas Anderson side. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I love Boogie
0: Nights, but why did he make Event Horizon? Yeah. <laughs> you bounced back with Magnolia, though. Bounce
1: back with Magnolia. <laughs> what a whiplash of films that would be. That would be some career.
0: Now they secretly are the same person. They just—it's a bit like um, Ian Banks and Ian M Banks. Yeah,
1: yeah, it <laughs> is. I will say as well though that Paul Thomas Anderson is somebody that does like his trash as well. Mm. Weirdly, he also likes his video games. And in terms of one of the films that he was once quoted as wanting to make, one of the video game movies was Metal Gear Solid. I remember for a All very right. short time, he was rumoured to have some sort of connection to the Metal Gear Solid adaption, which still hasn't happened. Starring Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> I, oh, fuck, man. I would pay <laughs> everything. I would sell my house to see that film. He comes out of retirement, especially for <laughs> Metal Gear Solid. Okay, so I do want to speak about the film now, and... There's no better place for me to start than the film's first opening 10 minutes. Yeah. I will say that Soldier is a film of two montages, and that really sets you up for what the film that you're going to get. One of them is the opening 10 minutes, which is amazing. And then there's one one good, one bad. One good, one really bad. And that is Soldier (laughs) in a nutshell. And I will say that the opening 10 minute montage is absolutely fantastic.
0: Yeah, I was very impressed
1: with it. And I feel like it goes in hard as well with the killing of the boar in the first couple of minutes. It really sets you up as to what to expect. And then and then killing a kid as well moments mm. later. Mm. It really places you into the film. It's like you are in the deep end and this shit's going off. And I really like that. I think it sets up that world brilliantly. Yeah,
0: it's no holds barred. Yeah,
1: Because you go from the boar
0: to the killing of the slow kid to killing of the mother and child in the training situation and then killing of the woman in the Moscow scene all within about two minutes of
1: each other. And it's where we also get a glimpse. It's another one of those moments where they do find a way to scatter a few Easter eggs from the Blade Runner universe during this sequence as well, as we do see on, on his service record that he fought at the Battle of Tannhauser Gates and something about the Shoulder of Orion fight as well. There's also loads of Easter eggs towards Kurt Russell's filmography. I think he received like the McCready badge or some, yeah, something Yeah, I was going like to that. say.
0: And there's something to do with, um, is it Kurtz in Stargate? Oh, of course, yeah. What What's his name in that? But yeah, there's Easter eggs from all throughout his career on that sign. You can freeze frame it anyway.
1: I was going to ask, what year did Stargate come out in relation to Soldier? I know Soldier's 98. 94. Oh, of course, because Stargate was a precursor to Independence Day. That was the Mm, next film Roland Emmerich did. Yeah, of course, yeah. Weirdly enough, actually, speaking about Roland Emmerich, a film that Soldier is often pitted up against is Universal Soldier because they Mm. have some vaguely similar subject matter. I think Universal Soldier is always regarded as being the better film. Mm. That is something that I disagree with entirely. I don't actually like Universal Soldier. I think that's more derivative than anything in Soldier. Yeah, yeah.
0: Although... I can picture this being either a Van Damme or even a, an 80s Schwarzenegger vehicle at some point. Yeah. It, it reminded me a little bit of a much larger budgeted version of uh, Cyborg, especially during the, the end fight between um, yeah. him and Jason Scott Lee. It did remind me of Cyborg done better. <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there was sort of it did feel very much a, of a piece with sort of 80s action films that there's some things that even things like commando yeah where it reminded me of that especially when he has all the stuff on his face and
1: and he's holding machine guns and rocket launches
0: i'd say it's almost like the end of an era of those star-led tough guy action films from the 80s and 90s
1: i think you're absolutely bang on there as well and i, and I will say i think one of the reasons that it was poorly received was it was likely a few years too late for that type of movie because they had already started to transition out of cinema yeah, we were already starting to leave that behind and moving to a different style of cinema I mean it's weird to think like three years later we had The Fellowship of the Ring and that type of film (laughs) these -hmm. really big fantasy movies this is it's a few years late for an era that had already started to die out yeah i think Schwarzenegger's career was already on the wane at this point as well
0: oh definitely i feel like this kind of film was already starting to be made on a lower budget and mainly go direct to dvd
1: well this did actually go direct to dvd in the uk it bombed (laughs) so hard in america um i do have here that it grossed only 14 million dollars overall And that is against a $60 million budget. Wow. When it came to the UK release, they released it direct-to-DVD, which makes it the most expensive direct-to-DVD release in the UK.
0: I never knew that. I do actually remember it being advertised. Yeah.
1: Did it actually have a trailer? It did. Yeah. Because I I remember seeing the trailer at the cinema and also the standee at my local cinema. but. Also, a a film that... I can't remember if this went direct-to-DVD with us. Was it Battlefield Earth? Did that actually get a cinema release with us? Hmm, I'm not sure. Because I remember seeing the trailer, I remember seeing the standees, but I never saw that it got released. Possibly. I'd have to look into that. Yeah, but anyway, Soldier at the time, it was the most expensive direct-to-DVD film in the UK. Which I think goes some steps towards saying as to why it's very little seen as well.
0: It joins a club along with Theodore X <laughs> <as>
1: <laughs> being
0: most expensive director video films of all time.
1: That really places it into context, doesn't it? <laughs> Speaking about the film as being a director DVD film, it's weird to think about it. Back then there was a huge stigma about director DVD films. It's like there's a gulf in quality towards what you see on a cinema and what you see that goes directly to home market. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird to think now, I actually think that Soldier, if it was released now, made to a more contemporary standard, its release on Netflix would actually make it one of the more modestly budgeted streaming yeah. uh, films out there. So it made it yeah. made me realise reading that, and even the Empire Review jokes about it going direct to DVD, and it made me just realise how things have changed in cinema over the last 20, 20 or so years, that actually, there's not that stigma attached to streaming or direct-to-DVD anymore. In fact, no. some people, if not many people, prefer it. Yeah, yeah. Especially now when we can't literally go to the cinema.
0: <laughs> but I would say even on that front, it's a very high-quality direct-to-DVD film. Yeah. Because the skill on display, which I don't think that Paul W.S. Anderson gets enough credit for him because he's involved with some pretty trashy material. Pretty, well, I would say at times, but most of the time, yeah, a lot of that doesn't come through because uh, commenting on that first 10 minutes, the visual storytelling on display is pretty decent. And I think all, all throughout, because uh, for a film that lasts 95 minutes, even with the other characters, there's not an awful lot of dialogue going around. And uh, I'd say a good 50 to 60% of the film is done dialogue free.
1: Yeah, and I will say what dialogue is used, and I do know that it's a joke to say that Kurt russell Lee does only say yes sir no sir etc but there is a piece of dialogue that he utters in the film coupled with that opening that i think does all the character work that you need in this film and that is when he's asked about if he does feel anything what's driving him he says that it's fear and discipline and she says even now and he says always and it takes you straight back to them watching that boar get ripped to shreds by Hmm. dogs and then the kid getting killed in the middle of the country And you realise that to say no, to rebel in any way, is to die. And there's a moment as well when one of his fellow soldiers are told that they're not soldiers anymore. They don't even need to salute. And you can tell he doesn't know how to comprehend that because to not do it is to die. Yeah. Again, I think those are elements of this film that it's just not given enough credit for. That's why Todd works for me as a character as well is because there's a vulnerability to him that you don't really normally get with this kind of stoic action hero of the era is that the thing that's driving him is he's almost childlike in terms of his single-mindedness, yeah. but he's also yeah. fearful and vulnerable.
0: You get that in a big way once he's outcast by the um, by the settlers, because yeah, I wasn't expecting him to cry, and I was almost like, oh, don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it put me off guard cuz yeah it, that that kind of thing you you just don't see in this kind of film no it's all very bravura macho fuck yeah all the time and, it, and it's not really like that there's a bit more depth to it And for a character who only says 104 words throughout the whole film, there's probably more depth there than quite a lot of the um, supporting characters that have a lot more to say, which I find quite interesting.
1: That's, I mean, like I say, Connie Nielsen probably has 1000% more words to say during the entire (laughs) script. But I don't think like her character, for example, is just there to ask questions. It's not as fleshed out as the, the other characters. I quite like Sean Pertwee in the movie as well from talking about the other characters.
0: I mean, Connie Nielsen, I thought they were going to develop that a lot more than they did. Yeah. They sow the seeds for it and then they do nothing with it later on.
1: That is one of my issues with the film and it does come with what I would call 20 minutes of rough road in the middle of the film. Yeah. I feel like they've gotten lost with what they can do with the character and with these characters. Everything just stalls for about 20 minutes or so in story terms. It still looks fine. Things are happening as well. There's some guff with wind. Uh, <laughs> that, that the uh, the settlers are all, are all afraid of i would say that it really comes to a climax with what is our second montage which i feel like has been made in the editing room well after the fact because it's just made oh, from totally. existing material around the montage it normally a montage is supposed to show you a passage of time and what's happening during that passage of time What this shows you is things that have happened before this montage and things that are going to happen after. It's almost like a trailer for the (laughs) remainder of the film.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's set to some very strange music. Oh, certainly. Well, I say very strange music, but very strange music for this film.
1: Yeah, it comes out of the blue in terms of the, the music, its style and its tone is completely jarring against the rest of the film.
0: The rest of the film, the music is very—I uh, was going to say—predator-like. Uh, Especially in that first ten minutes, it reminded me a lot of Alan Silvestri's predator yeah. work. And you, you can kind of tell, oh, this is the guy that's going to make A.V.P. But yeah, you've got like Predator, Alan Silvestri, military-style music throughout the whole film. Yeah. And then this montage—it's suddenly Enya and Clanad come through the door, and we have all this sort of new-age Irish folk
1: <laughs> yeah. for some bizarre reason. <laughs> I think it's to really set up the difference with this little village, I think, the more folksiness of them. But we never really get a sense of what their music is. That they never have a particular sound. So when we actually no. hear it out of the blue, and then that's the last time it's referenced, it's 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 jarring.
0: It is referenced again a little bit later on that you can hear somebody playing some sort of Irish folk jig. Oh, right. But I don't know where the Irish thing comes from. Do you think it was an Irish
1: ship? And well, that's why it crashed, the only thing I the, the, at the think- wheel.
0: The main Irish connection I can think of is the guy who's the same guy that plays—is it Paddy O'Brien in Austin Powers?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. I'd, oh my god, it is as well. I had not, I had not made that connection yet. And it, and yeah. it is. When, he,
0: when he came on screen, I was trying to work. I've, I've seen him before. <laughs> like, Where is he from? I was like, oh yeah, he's the Lucky Charms guy from Austin Powers. You gotta get the. They're always one. after my Lucky Charms. <laughs>
1: It's a television commercial. <laughs> I I honestly, I was watching it, looking at him going, I do recognize that face. And I had actually yeah. watched Austin Powers last week as well. So <laughs> I just hadn't made the connection that it was him. Oh, and uh, yeah. what, talking about the, uh, the secondary characters, we actually have Michael Chiklis in this film yeah. as well. I'd forgotten that he was in this film entirely as well. So this is the pre-Fantastic Four Michael Chiklis. Pre-The Shield. Pre-The Shield. That's what he would prefer that we say. But I'm going to say pre-Fantastic Four. (laughs) I didn't do that movie. I didn't. It was just just some guy in a seat. It's just a boulder. Yeah. (laughs) So I do have some questions that I did want to ask you as well, just in regards to this film. You've already touched upon it, actually. But hearing from yourself as well that you did have a positive experience with the film... I just want to ask you, what do you think happened to Paul W.S. Anderson? What happened to his style of filmmaking? Why did it go so off the rails from this point onwards, after showing potential?
0: I would say the biggest thing would probably be due to the double failure of Event Horizon and this film. Yeah. And the subsequent, I would say, rebirth through Resident Evil, because that film did very, very well for its budget. Yes, it did. And I think it just sent him down that path of making films like that. Yeah. The interesting thing I would note is that watching this film and Event Horizon on paper at this point, I would say he is the perfect choice to make either an Alien, Predator, or AVP film. If you're doing a kind of blockbuster popcorn version of that, uh, he is the perfect choice. Yeah. But something happened in between these films that he made in the late 90s and making Resident Evil. And we got the version of AVP that was actually made, which falls way short of expectations for someone like him making an Alien slash Predator film. I would say the potential that he shows in in these earlier films versus what he's only doing five years, six years later, is um, something's gone wrong. I think there's a, a loss of confidence somewhere along the line mm-hmm. yeah he's obviously made resident evil that's been well received but yeah i think he's just got lazy and the passion's gone a bit
1: for me as well one of the things that does shine through and i will say even with the likes of Resident evil and alien vs predator a film that i will say that we've already covered on the podcast as well mm. rather negatively i must say yeah i did not enjoy that film <laughs> it's an alien vs predator film shouldn't be that boring even if you're going no. to be this trashy masterpiece, which to be honest, if you're doing an Alien vs. Predator film, there's only one way to do it and that's to be pure sci-fi trash. Let's have as much fun with this idea as we can possible and that doesn't have any fun whatsoever. Yeah. But one thing that I will say that does still shine through about Paul W. Sanderson in those two films as well, Resident Evil and Alien vs. Predator is that he does have a very strong aesthetic and he has a very strong style that still does bleed through. I will say that Resident Evil probably pulls it back. It's not as colourful. It's not as vivid. And neither is Alien vs. Predator on that front. But those films are made for very limited budgets. And they look so much more than they are. Yeah. And I will say that it's not until recently when he's fallen into the trap of making these digital 3D movies... I would say that he has completely lost his way in terms of his visual aesthetic. I would say, like, once you get to, like, Resident Evil Afterlife and Three Musketeers. Yeah, Three Musketeers is another one that's weirdly got some really weird 3D shots. Pompeii. Pompeii, yeah, that's another one, yeah. Just really dull. No passion there. Yeah. I'd prefer to see this type of movie from him again, where it's rough around the edges, it's not subtle whatsoever, but it's got passion in it, it's a bit trashy, and I will say as well, even the action in this film. Compared to, say, like his last Resident Evil film that he made, the final chapter, that was a film that a lot of people laughed about because of the editing in that film is manic. It's all over the place and it's like cuts every couple of seconds. With Soldier, the action in it, it's like the camera is well placed, it's well moved, the action is allowed to play out and you are allowed to follow it. It's like the tone and the pace of the action is not dictated by the speed of the editing. And I feel like that is something that has been lost in films of this ilk later on down the line i think we're starting to find our way again with the likes of john wick and and the raid and that type of film where Mm. we start to find our way in action cinema once more it's not just about moving the camera as fast as you can to make the pitch have more energy (laughs) it's more about like what you can do within the frame that the audience will react to i think soldier does that well
0: i think for action cinema although it's probably the best example of that i think People were hard on the heels of Bourne for that kind of shaky cam action style, um, which took quite a long time to shake off. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and it's only now that I feel we're getting back on track with action films, especially mainstream ones. Yeah. Because I think there's always been good action films, especially um, foreign language ones and and sort of more on the fringes of the mainstream. But in terms of like big budget action films were of that type anyway, We're, we're... we're kind of getting back to where we should be but uh, yeah the only thing i would say that about this film versus say something like avp because i imagine that are they a similar-ish budget
1: avp was actually made for 70 million so it's actually 10 million more than this film was
0: because i genuinely think that film looks a lot cheaper Mm. than this and i just feel like the scope of this is bigger in a way even though it's fairly contained for a lot of its running time i just think what's there is done better than what is in avp where with avp you can just tell they've got like about seven flats and they've moved them around (laughs) to make the different rooms (laughs) whereas this it feels like a a much more solid production design
1: yeah and i will say with soldier i i do really appreciate the world building i think where this film excels is in its world building because you do get a sense of the environment i will say you kind of lose the geography a little bit because i think of that jump between on location shooting to the studio i think you do lose an idea of the sense of geography for me yeah yeah but i will say that the world itself and what is built into that world it feels rather fleshed out and efficiently so as well I mean, at the end of the day as well, I don't want to be talking about it like it is a masterpiece film because it is a flawed film. It is a trashy film, no pun intended. It's a very trashy film. But I just think it's just a very competently made one. It's one where, again, if you can put up with this 20 minutes of rough road in the middle where the film just kind of stops, I don't think it picks up again until the moment that... Todd is exiled from the place, or or I think the moment that it actually picks up once more is when he's teaching the the son the lesson in regards to what's the, the little boy's name Nathan. He's teaching him the lesson in regards to the snake, and from that moment it starts to go somewhere interesting again, and you're back into it.
0: Yeah, I would say um Sean Pertwee's death is when it really kicks back into yeah. gear fully. I was gonna say as well with with that. Um, it feels like there's been a lot of cutting around things to gain a um. An R rating. Yeah. Because I know they had to cut away from the gouging the ice scene, and I feel like they've had to cut away when um, his foot gets blown off. I feel like the shot's missing, where it feels like it should go down to gore, and there's no
1: gore. Yeah, he talks about losing a lot of blood, but there's barely a speck on him. But, yeah, you don't see anything. No, I, th- I think you're right, because I do remember one of the Empire magazines I got at the time. It had a giant picture on one of its pages of Sean Perthree with his leg blown off from a shot that's not in this film. Right, okay. And it looks far more gruey than what anything that we see in the film, really. Yeah, you only yeah. get one real glimpse at it and then it completely cuts past it. And I feel like, as well, probably coming off the back of Event Horizon, in which Paul Anderson had a hard time getting that film to an R rating for the rating spot. I feel like in this film there's been no fight in him. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay,
0: whatever. But yeah, uh, just mentioning the snake scene, or the scenes of involving the snakes... I quite like those and its groundedness, but at the same time, I'm like, it's kind of strange in a way that it's not like an alien snake. But then again, there are no aliens in this world, so I'm not sure what they're going for. It just felt a little bit too
1: grounded for the setting. Yeah, it does make you wonder where on earth did these snakes come from? Yeah. If they're not some sort of alien snake. Yeah, I agree. Are they native to this planet?
0: Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And they look exactly like earth snakes. (laughs) Or are Earth snakes aliens from this
1: planet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they've, uh, like you say, I think they've tried to ground it a little bit too much in that regard. Where they could have had a bit more fun with that. There's some sort of indigenous trash insect that they have to uh, be fearful of. Some trash pest. Trash panda. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where Rocket came from. <laughs> Well, it's, they've both got Kurt Russell in them, so. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. I think Guardians of the Galaxy is a great film for Kurt Russell. That's a film that needed Kurt Russell in it because for that role you needed all of the baggage that Kurt Russell brings as a very likable actor. Yeah. Because the moment you see Kurt Russell on screen, it doesn't matter the context; he's the good guy. Yeah. And that film really plays into that really well. I always like that element. Yeah. And I do think with this, like you say, he was paid. 15 to 20 million, he's worth every penny, even if he does only utter a little over 100 words.
0: That, that's not what his role in the film is. No. Anyway, his role in the film is not to speak, it's to do yeah. with his bod. And his slightly baggy eyes.
1: <laughs> and his slightly baggy 50-year-old eyes.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <shh>. he's 38. <laughs> And again, this is something else that I read. I do remember this film was obviously, considering the injury that they had, it was something of a troubled production for Kurt Russell. I remembered reading that he also kept on having to be rebuffed by Paul Anderson because... He wanted to give himself more lines and more to say throughout the entire film. So they kept on having to knock him back and say, no, the less you say, the better it is for the character. But he had such a hard time coming to terms with that because he was constantly throwing out really good lines, really good ideas for lines. And he still kept on having to knock him back, even if they were great lines. (laughs) He does get the one fantastic line, which is, uh, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to kill them all, sir. It's like, that's great. That's good not flashy does the job
0: his other line uh, which is great is uh your men are obsolete <laughs> <laughs> it Is great and i was i wrote badass next to that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that it is it is a film in which again you would just call it badass and everything that comes with that you know it's <laughs> yeah i'd say his other best line is probably uh... <laughs> 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 Oh dear! <laughs> and that brings us actually to uh, to Jason Isaacs as well, and h- yeah. his whole crew of people. He is yeah. playing a cartoon character.
0: Oh, totally! Right down to the moustache. I mean, I broke down. Even though he's not using an English accent, I I put he's playing English-looking man, <laughs> right? He looks like he should be holding a t- tiny cup of tea with every shot. Oh, completely! He should be twiddling his moustache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your men are obsolete. Yeah. He's auditioning for Captain Hook here. Hey, and he got it. He did, yeah. Yeah. The two big crossovers between this and Event Horizon are Jason Isaacs and, and Sean Pertwee. Yeah, th-
1: those were like Paul W. Sanderson's guys. Actually. You're my guys. <laughs> they are, they are. And and yep. even Jason Isaacs has an uncredited cameo in Resident Evil as well. Oh right. <laughs> I was a big fan of Resident Evil. You gotta remember back when that film came out, I was huge on the video game. And Mm -hmm. I actually still think the first one is probably the best of a not great series of films. (laughs) Speaking about Resident Evil, though, I do have an interesting tidbit that I did want to uh, provide you with today. Is that recently, the journalist Nick DeSemelian, who we spoke about on this podcast before in our last Action Hero episode, he published an article in which he had a conversation with James Cameron. And James Cameron Mm -hmm. mentioned that his lockdown film of choice has been Resident Evil that he's actually been revisiting quite often recently. And I do believe that he referred to it as being masterful. (laughs) That's James Cameron's taste for you right here. Wow. I kind of like James Cameron's trashy sense of cinema. (laughs) He doesn't always back the best films, though, does he? I still remember his uh, Terminator Genesis comments.
0: He could be reviewing the colour grades for Abyss and True Lies in his downtime, couldn't he?
1: Exactly. Why isn't he? (laughs) We were talking about that the other day, weren't we? We're still waiting on the abyss. We're going to launch the campaign. Release the abyss campaign. Lazy bastard. (laughs) He keeps on talking about them waiting on, oh, well, we've still got work to do on it. He keeps going about this 28
0: hours that's needed to review. And I was like, I've not got 28 hours. Bullshit, you've not got 28 hours. (laughs) Where does he fucking live? The bottom of the sea?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he does in his submarines, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, there's got to be more to it than that. I I feel like he just has no faith in physical media in its current form or home video in its current form. That's some bullshit reason that's preventing him from releasing it because I can't think of another reason. Because from what I know, the transfer is complete, the audio mix is complete, and the documentary has long been filmed and edited as well. Mm. So from where I'm sitting, I'm asking... What is there left to do, James Cameron? What
0: is there left to do? Fuck release the Snyder Cut, release fucking
1: Abyss. (laughs) Release the True Lies Cut. That's what we should have mentioned last episode.
0: Yeah. um, Anyway, uh, going back to Soldier, I think I should mention that this is a, a very rare cinematic example of Gary Busey playing
1: a rational character. He is still a cartoon character with his little metaphors as my dad, he used to tell me. Oh, he's playing himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's actually somewhat more... Sensible. Yeah, exactly. He's a bit more sensible than what he normally is. It's weird. I feel like we're in Bizarro World and the actual version yeah, of the yeah. script actually has Gary Busey in the Jason Isaacs role and Jason Isaacs in his role. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a refreshing change. I will say because I always like to get to see uh, Jason Isaacs do a little bit of pantomime.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he's the most incompetent military commander of all time. (laughs) I was even reading in the IMDb trivia section how, I mean, one, this whole training exercise, how on earth is this effective training for these um, super soldiers? I will never understand that. Yeah. It's cannon (laughs) fodder. I know. Yeah, they're even shit at that. And just in terms of like, someone mentioned that his offensive is done in the wrong order. Like in terms of his uh, foot soldiers versus artillery versus the vehicles, it's all done in the wrong order.
1: And I know. Yeah, for for a film that leans very heavily into like military uh, maneuvers and that type of thing, it's 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 funny that it gets it completely wrong.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I did enjoy uh, whenever Jason was on screen and um, having his spats with Gary Garibusi.
1: In that regard as well, I will say, for a 90-minute film, it has got quite a cast of characters. As you do mention, they are limited in the amount that they can do with those characters in 90 minutes. And yet, all of them to me feel distinctive, even if it is in a cartoon two-dimensional way. They've at least put time into establishing who those characters are enough for us to want them to (laughs) get killed or survive, or that type of thing.
0: I think it's because the time is put in at the start with those characters. Yeah, You don't switch back to them a great deal during the rest of the film, but because their relationship and, and their attitudes are set up quite effectively yeah. following the opening montage when they're testing out this new super soldier against Todd and their differing views on that, mm-hmm. even though yeah, they are completely two-dimensional characters, You know what they're about. So when you do switch back to them, you're under no illusions as to what they want and what they're doing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I will say as well, speaking of the bad guys, again, very two dimensional bad guy Kane 607, Jason Scotley. I do think though that Jason Scotley is very intimidating in that role as well. He is a giant of a man, it seems. He's got muscles on muscles. (laughs) <laughs> Even his head looks like one giant muscle. It looks his head is a giant <laughs> bicep to me. That's that's what I can see. He looks scary. It's strange. Though. I had a slightly different
0: reaction to that. I uh, actually wrote in my notes with Jason Scott Lee. Not so much the the opening sections, more so when he's driving the vehicle. Yeah. I, I didn't find him threatening enough. Mm. I'm not sure whether it was because of his line delivery. Yeah. He looked too nice to me. I don't know why. Oh, it's
1: like somebody you'd like to introduce to your gran. Like <laughs> have a nice cup of tea with.
0: No, but I mean, I it was fine during the end fight, and it's just the bit in the middle when he's in the truck. Yeah, I don't know whether it's because they staged it wrong or lit it wrong. I don't think they made enough of um, the whole scratch-die thing. I don't know. I just thought they needed to be a little bit more threatening at that point in the film.
1: I will agree with you in terms of the scenes in which he is in the truck, the uh, whatever the kind of truck that is, that military vehicle. When I was talking about him being intimidating... The scenes in which I think of him are not the scenes in a truck. It's that opening with his yeah. fight against Todd and the two other soldiers from his unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the moment that he's inside the truck, he becomes a bit more anonymous as well. But the yeah, moment yeah. it becomes a one-on-one fight again, it's good again.
0: Completely. And I, I really enjoyed the bit at the start when he's basically had his eye ripped out and he's just acting normal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> sir. My eyes hanging out my socket, sir. <laughs> I mean, it made me laugh anyway because I was like, Kurt Russell's supposed to be this sort of advanced soldier and he was he's huffing and puffing doing his run. Uh, <laughs> and I was yeah. like, sit down, have a break, have a Kit Kat. <laughs> have you a know?
1: break, have a kick. I like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was like, this, this other guy's totally gonna, you know, yeah. Send to no illusions that it's not being predictable anyway. So it's
1: not that kind of film. You know what you're getting, essentially. Yeah. And I will say again. In that regard, don't be walking into this film expecting something that's going to blow the doors off your car. No. It's just simply very enjoyable for a film that is often regarded as one of the worst action films (laughs) in in cinema. I mean, to be regarded as the worst film in Paul W.S. Anderson's filmography, (laughs) that takes some going, really. That's already a a director that people regard as being pretty bad anyway.
0: It's definitely not. Yeah. But um, it's so predictable in that way that I am... I felt slightly robbed when, yeah, he didn't get with Connie Nielsen at the end. Yeah. Especially, I wrote, mmm, woman boob <laughs> for that scene.
1: He catches a glance, doesn't he? Yeah. I thought that was going somewhere in a proper B-movie direction, but it, it, they didn't pay that off. I think they played more into it as well with that second montage that we don't like. That seems to be built around simply to create some sort of attraction between Todd and her as well. So it's, it's weird that they would go out of their way to put that montage in place where they're playing on that attraction and then have no payoff for that later on down the line.
0: And I think that's where they try to build in some sort of romance, but it's all done in the wrong places as well because yeah. let's not forget during those montage sequences, Sean Pertwee, her husband, is still alive.
1: Still very much alive. Still very much a loving husband as well. It's
0: almost like... They try to create this romantic relationship and like you just got Sean Pertwee in the background I'm still I'm still her husband
1: at this point. <laughs> he is getting cooked to fuck. <laughs> yeah. It is a bit of a weird one that as well. Especially how um, Sean Pertwee, all power to him, he's very relaxed and, <laughs> and very accepting of this as well. Oh, completely. Like you say, he's just simply stood on the sidelines like, Yeah, why not? It's just a super soldier that's come here to bang my wife. What could <laughs> possibly go wrong? Have a go. Everyone else has. <laughs> yeah. Have a goal, mate. I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I will just jump into now we're starting to get towards the end of this thing. So I will say, do you have any final thoughts in regards to Soldier? Anything that you'd like to bring up at this point?
0: Yeah, I would say that I did like both comeuppances of the, the main villains. I liked yeah. the helicopter blade gag that they use with Jason Scott Lee. I, I liked that for all this super soldier high tech that he basically kills him with the basically the most low-tech method in the world (laughs) yeah and i do just love the um jason isaac's piss in his pants at the end and then getting thrown off the ship and then squabbling over the bomb yeah very view to a kill
1: i would say (laughs) i thought of you to a kill when i was watching it it does it feels it reminded me of when they were squabbling over the dynamite at the end that's it yeah yeah that's the scene yeah i will say as well i really like the ending for jason isaac's character especially also, I really quite like the ending of the film with Todd and Nathan, the little kid. Yeah, yeah. It's just a nice, touching, corny moment at the end of the film that works.
0: I feel that's where the payoff with Connie Nielsen. that's where I thought it was going to come and, and that shot never came. It just ends yeah. with him with the kid. And I thought, oh, is she going to come into frame at some yeah. point And they're going to have a look. That's all they needed.
1: But not asking for a kiss or anything like that, that would have been weird.
0: No, no, you just want some sort of acknowledgement that something's there, Yeah, because they built it up. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote cheese next to him picking up the kid, but is the right kind of cheese for this film? Yeah. I think for what it does as a B-movie, I think it knows that it's a B-movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does most of its b movieisms very well, mm-hmm. but I think people are maybe judging it as an A-movie? Yeah. I mean, it may have started off as an A-movie when David Webb Peoples was writing it, mm-hmm. but given what they had and, and the filmmakers behind it, uh, it was definitely being made as a B-movie and everyone in it, I don't think, is under any illusion that it's not a B-movie.
1: I mean, I do agree with you as well. It is a, a solid B-movie. I think that's what I want to really stress, during this episode. I've really spoken positively about the film, but I just want to stress once more, it is really good trash, <laughs> essentially.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've got not one, not two, but I think three shots of uh, flames coming from behind Kurt Russell. Yes, yeah, yeah, you film. do. <laughs> in slow-mo, I mean, I would say this as a minus point, there's probably a little bit too much slow-mo in the film for my taste.
1: Yeah, and there's slow-mo in places where it's clear that they never intended slow motion to be there because the film stock is rather jerky because they've not used the yeah. the right camera at the right frame rate. Yeah. And just before we do go into wrap-up, I do just want to go through some... Um, stats and facts just to settle this film in as well i do want to say that the the rotten Tomatoes score for this film is 12 percent. oh exactly and the consensus is that it's a boring genre film and a waste of a good set empire magazine gave it one out of five and described it as truly dire all of that really does say why i wanted to review this film in a sense is because that sets you up for a film that is truly awful with no redeeming qualities whatsoever yeah and this is a very competently made action b movie Mm. and i think that is actually reflected in its imdb score yeah yeah i found a website in which you can track imdb scores over the years since imdb started and this originally started at around five on the IMDB scale and now it's grown over the years to 6 out of 10 which mm. i would say is rather fair for this film it's you're looking at more of a 6 out of 10 film than something like a 5 or a 4 as it's often described it does seem to indicate that there is a very small but steady growing change of opinion about this film yeah yeah and i think the more time that passes and the more we get to divorce it from Blade Runner and that legacy, especially now that Blade Runner 2049 has come out, and we can really set our expectations as to what type of film it actually is, not what it could be. That's going to work in the film's favour. Yeah, yeah. I'll just go through my final thoughts about the film now as well. I- I've wrote down, I've done a A little bit of a write up and said, although Soldier is by no means a perfect film, it is one made enjoyable by a strong central performance from Kurt Russell, an interesting central premise, and some strong world building. If you can tough out the rough road, as the film does lose its way for 20 minutes or so, there is some good fun to be had from a once promising director. I do wish we could see more of this from Paul Anderson in the future as well. Uh, Sorry, Paul W.S. Anderson in the future.
0: Yeah. Maybe you should change his name back to um, Paul Anderson and
1: see what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he might get in with a few more uh, producers that might suddenly want to make films with him again. <laughs> yeah, mistaken for P.T. Anderson. What wonder if he can wear one of those, like, crouch old Marx glasses and nose moustache combo <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah, I made There Will Be Blood. Yes, I'm best friends with Daniel Day-Lewis. And he wants to be in my sequel to Death Race. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That would be good, though. I'd love Daniel Day-Lewis to come and do a really trashy movie. Wouldn't it be great?
1: I'm retired. But only from being in good films. Yeah. <laughs> so for the next ten years, I'm going to be making directed DVD trash.
0: Yeah. Do you know like how um like Ian McKellen did that? He had that year one time, didn't he? Where he basically sort of did all his bucket list things, like I want to play Widow Twanky in a pantomime, man. I want to be in Coronation Street
1: and I, stuff I like that. I want to be in Coronation Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he did
0: all those things, and I was like, oh, maybe Daniel Day-Lewis will do that. Yeah, I want to be in a. In a director DVD film with Miller Jovovich. (laughs) (laughs)
1: With dodgy green screen. Honestly, if the only thing that our audience members take away from this podcast is that they have a desire to watch a director DVD action film starring Daniel Day-Lewis, and that's what they want to make their life goal. I think we've done well in this world, Andy.
0: (laughs) Maybe they should make a a Neil Breen biopic
1: starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Holy shit, mate. You've hit the nail on the head. Mm. I want to see that today. <laughs> <laughs> that is it? Uh, but could you imagine a Neil Breen film with Daniel Day-Lewis? It's too many egos on one screen there. <laughs> so <laughs> like it would be the first Daniel Day-Lewis film where all of the best lines are given to other characters, mainly Neil yeah. Breen. But
0: it has to be made by Neil Breen as well. It has to be <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anyway. (laughs) I would say, do you have any final thoughts on Soldier, Andy?
0: Not really. I mean, it's a funny old one because, yeah, it's a really fun B-movie. And I enjoyed it whilst I was watching it. And I enjoyed all the bits. It's quite a satisfying run when he starts dispatching all the super soldiers. Yep. It's a lot of fun whilst you're watching it. It leaves no impression whatsoever afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it's never going to knock your socks off or anything like that. And I, I even maybe think in the grand scheme of things, maybe an IMDb score of six out of tens, maybe being generous when you think of all cinema. And I mean, that's why ratings are kind of difficult anyway, because you're rating it more within its own genre rather than yeah. against other types of films. So, yeah, it's difficult to gauge in that sense. But um, yeah,
1: because on one level, you end up like leveling Shaun the Sheep against the Godfather. Two, oh, totally. But two great films, but <laughs> not too that you find yeah. together.
0: Yeah. It's definitely that classic popcorn movie where you're going to have some fun whilst you're watching it and then you're just going to completely forget about it, but it's a well-made one.
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head with Soldier. So I will say that we're going to be running into, uh, give you a little taster of what to expect and next week. We're going to just give you an idea of what our next episode will be. We're actually going to begin releasing some lost Best Forgotten Movie episodes beginning with next week is going to be Titan AE, an episode that we promised, what was the film that we, uh, we had done when we promised this?
0: It was the last episode we recorded of the original run it followed Last Action Hero. If you listen to the end of uh, Last Action Hero, we announce it and it never appeared. And we recorded it. It's just with all these lost episodes that we're going to release, life just got in the way. Yeah. And uh, we never ended up finishing um, the editing process for it. And it just got to the point where we could never fit them in. So we're, we're doing we're finishing them off now. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be releasing them sporadically throughout this
1: run. We're finishing them off with a bit of handwork. A bit of polish. It's the messy work, but someone's got to do it. Just giving it a little spit shine. (laughs) So next week, you will be back to Best Forgotten Movies. It will be the Titan AE episode, so you'll be able to get your teeth into that. But for now, I've been Gareth Grieve. Sir, yes, sir. (laughs) And that has been Andrew Raphael. Thank you for listening.